With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, a significant rebound is underway for the almond industry and a reminder for clean truck check requirements. But we start today with Brian German. Sales Account Manager for AgroLiquid, Dylan Rogers joins us today to talk about the importance of managing potassium in almonds. So potassium is really important in water relations. We're going to reduce drought stress if we run into that situation. Uh, We're going to prevent disease pressure and pest pressure. Um, Again, potassium is important for controlling the opening and closing of stomata in the plant tissues and leaves. Uh, Again, just regulating those stresses and different temperature ranges. Potassium is also important for building sugars and nut fill in the permanent crops. To start off first, I think it's important for growers to pull uh, soil samples. Pay attention to those potassium levels in your soil. If you see those start to drop and those reserves start to get pulled from, it may be time to start looking at a at a dry potassium program in the fall, uh, whether that be a, a MOP or SOP type product, but important to keep those reserves built up in the soil. Uh, The next consideration would be to supplement those soil levels with an in-season liquid potassium type product. Keep an eye on tissues samples throughout the season. Um, If you're starting to get behind, there there are liquid products that you can put on through your irrigation system or even some foliar potassium products that will help you get back to those sufficient ranges. The final numbers are in for calendar year 2023 agricultural trade. Both exports and imports took a hit. Gary Crawford has more. It's a monumental task for worldwide agricultural import and export numbers to be collected and published each month. It takes the better part of two months to do it. That's why we just now have the numbers for this past December. Therefore, the complete ag trade numbers for calendar year 2023. And during that year... The overarching theme, I think, has been the easing of inflation, the lowering of unit values. Which helped to lower the total level of U.S. ag trade exports and imports. Economist Bart Kenner tracks trade for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he told us... The lowering of unit values has reflected in a bit of a cooling off of agricultural imports that had been shooting up, and a cooling off of agricultural exports, which had also been shooting up, but exports, you know, have come down farther. And a big part of that has been that strong U.S. dollar in the competition with other countries that have more favorable exchange rates. And so uh, countries buying these goods are shopping in places where they can get similar goods for a lower price. So here's how the U.S. ag trade turned out in 2023. The agricultural exports for calendar year 2023 are $174.9 billion. That's down 11% from the previous year. And agricultural imports are $194.9 billion, down 2%. As to U.S. ag product exports last year, the category taking the biggest hit, the so-called bulk products, for example. Exports of wheat for 2023 calendar year were $6.1 billion, down 27% from last year. Corn exports were $13.1 billion, down 29% from last year. Soybean exports were $27.9 billion, down 19% from last year. And cotton exports were $6 billion, 
down 33% from last year. Most of the declines in bulk product export values were due to lower prices, yes. But Bart Kenner says some of it also was due to just not moving as much product. Export volumes were down for those bulk commodities as well. On the upside, some U.S. products seeing exports climb in 2023. Products such as fruits, vegetables, and distilled spirits. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A fight is brewing over Canada's Grocers Code of Conduct effort. Dennis Guy reports. Canada's Agriculture Minister Lawrence McCauley says that his minister could implement government intervention if members of the food supply chain ignore involvement in an industry code of conduct. McCauley has expressed his disappointment that the Canadian Grocery Code of Conduct has still not been launched after years of work with some of the larger retail grocery chains hesitating to sign on. The Canadian Federation of Agriculture has stated that an industry code of conduct is long overdue. The House of Commons Standing Committee on Agriculture and Agri-Food has been pressing Walmart Canada and the National Loblaw Company as to why they have not signed the code. Walmart says that under the code's current structure, it is not in a position to commit. Loblaw's chairman, Galen Weston, says that he will sign a code, but not in the way it's currently written. Gary Sands, vice president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers, says that Canada's consolidated industry has long been dominated by about three large grocer chains. The Canadian grocery industry is one that's very heavily consolidated. It's dominated by very few big players. What the Code of Conduct sets out to do is establish a set of principles, rules that will provide more fairness in the industry, allow more independent grocers to compete fairly. We believe it will lower costs and therefore lower prices. Gary Sands says that the large grocery chains, through their huge buying power, can throw their weight around. In some cases, the independents, often the only grocer in rural or a small town, have found themselves unable to supply their customers. The product might be in short supply or there's high demand for the commodity, so the retail chain will come along and tell the supplier, I know we agreed to this amount, but we want a lot more than that. So the supplier will reallocate their supply to that big retailer and take it away from others. We have about 6,900 independent grocers in Canada where they're the only grocery store in town. This is not just a question of pricing now, it's a question of food supply. Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers Gary Sands explains that while a code of conduct involvement for agri-food industry members is currently voluntary, there is a stipulation that it could be made compulsory. It's a voluntary industry code, so we're trying to get everyone to sign on to this and agree to it. But what we have committed to is that in 18 months after the code's been into effect, we will review the code to see what's working and what's not working. The alternative to this not working for industry is a regulated code. That's sort of the incentive for people to come together and support this document. Reporting from Canada, I'm Dennis Guy. In today's National Spotlight, heading further into 2024, one of the top missions for Growth Energy is year-round nationwide access to E15. Chad Smith has the story. Growth Energy CEO Emily Score spoke on E15 during her keynote address at the group's annual meeting. This past year, we saw some big wins at the state level. Nebraska followed Iowa's lead with a statewide E15 standard, ensuring that every retailer in the state will offer the EarthKind engine smart fuel choice. Five states 
added E15 tax incentives. E15 is now legal in Phoenix and Montana. We're continuing to build momentum in the state capitals, but we all know that E15 will truly take off when the federal government opens access permanently year-round. Year-round E15 will save money on fuel costs for drivers. She says that's a proven fact. Last summer, E15 saved drivers on average 15 cents a gallon, and in some instances, 40 to 60 cents per gallon. That makes a difference. Drivers can't afford to see those savings vanish on June 1st. Fortunately, after tireless work from Midwestern governors, EPA should issue final rulemaking this spring to allow year-round E15 in eight states. Eight states is progress, but we cannot allow E15 to become a regional niche fuel. SCORE says Growth Energy will be advocating for a legislative E15 solution on Capitol Hill. We're continuing our work with lawmakers to achieve what we really need, a legislative solution that is permanent, nationwide, and not reversible in court. Because America cannot build a long-term energy future one state or one temporary waiver at a time. The biofuel industry has picked up several wins in recent years, but she says more battles are ahead. Winning those battles means great opportunities are yet to come. We've been fighting for the RFS and E15 for many years. And while government is never fast enough for business, we've come a long way. And we're going to keep on battling until we win. But these fights are now only part of an even bigger task ahead of us. We are beginning a whole new chapter for the bioeconomy, and this is our time to shine. Again, that's Growth Energy CEO Emily Score. Chad Smith reporting. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, the American Sheep Industry Association reports that date night lamb has been featured online. As the American Lamb Board seeks new partnerships to promote the benefits of American lamb, partnering with America's largest online cooking school, Homemade, just makes sense. Founded in 2020 by nationally recognized chef Joel Gameron, Homemade got its start during COVID with free online live cooking classes for home cooks. The success of the online classes led to a live cooking show on PBS and a brand new culinary studio in Seattle, where high-quality content is created including recipes, photography, and videos. Gamoran stands out as a versatile culinary powerhouse seamlessly blending live shows, interactive cooking classes, and captivating social media content. This is a dynamic combination for promoting American lamb, and ALB's new sponsorship includes integration in all three. A long-term partnership between ALB and Homemade includes monthly live classes, appearances on three episodes of Homemade Live, the site's PBS television show, reaching 2.5 million impressions per episode, and four new recipes with photos and videos each month for use on the American Lamb Consumer website and social media channels. The partnership kicked off last week with the first live online American Lamb cooking class, Date Night Lamb Chops, on February 12th and is now available on demand at homemadecooking.com. The class had more than 500 registered attendees, and the total views are expected to be more than 300,000. Homemade has more than 120,000 foodie consumers subscribed to the newsletter. In other livestock news, the U.S. Meat Export Federation showcased U.S. pork and beef products for key retail buyers in Japan. USMEF's John Harris has more. One of Japan's most important food shows, the Supermarket Trade Show, has just wrapped up, and Tom Kasatani, U.S. Meat Export Federation Marketing Director in Japan, explains that this event is a key venue for showcasing U.S. red meat products. Supermarket Trade Show is organized by the Japan Chain Store Association. It is a show specific for the retail company 
The main uh, participants, guests coming to the venue is the supermarket companies. So uh, supermarket is a very big market for us for both uh, children frozen products. That will be followed by the larger Foodex show in Tokyo in March. Both events give USMEF opportunity to show Japanese restaurants and retailers how to maintain high quality while meeting price pressures with U.S. beef and pork. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, all you have to do is subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. A significant rebound is expected for the California almond industry. Senior analyst covering fruits and tree nuts for Rabo Agri Finance, David Magana, highlights projections from their recent almond market outlook report. The title of the report is Significant Rebound Underway. So given that global almond production had back-to-back shorter crops during 2022 and 2023, and shipments continue at a strong pace, now we are expecting ending stocks or carry-out been significantly down compared to that in the previous two seasons that was at historically highs. So um, yeah, we're already seeing prices uh, improving over the past few months. And if shipments continue this strong pace, particularly exports that have been up in double digits for the rest of the season, we will continue to see this upward trend in prices benefiting growers that have been struggling for the past two or three seasons. The Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research is accepting nominations for the 2024 New Innovator in Food and Agriculture Research Award. The award supports early career scientists tackling significant challenges in food and agriculture. Nominations for the 2024 awards are open through tomorrow, February 21st, with the foundation seeking diverse, collaborative, and innovative perspectives to address current food and ag challenges. Each applicant can receive up to $150,000 per year for a maximum of three years. Up to 10 awards will be granted to early career scientists pursuing research that supports the foundation's research priorities and promotes global, sustainable food production. Interested parties from academic and research institutions are encouraged to nominate eligible candidates following the guidelines available at foundationfar.org. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has awarded over $270 million to state agriculture departments to enhance resilience in the food supply chain and bolster local and regional food systems. The funding administered through the Resilient Food Systems Infrastructure Program supports various entities including agricultural producers, processors, nonprofits, and local governments. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack announced seven states are opening requests for applications for the program, adding to the 28 already offering grant funding. The initiative aims to create robust food system infrastructure generating economic opportunities and supporting rural communities. States will fund projects to expand capacity across various food sectors, excluding meat and poultry. The program also provides support for supply chain coordination and technical assistance to farmers and food businesses. Producers are being encouraged to learn more about the requirements of the Clean Truck Check program. Director of Regulatory and Environmental Affairs for Western United Dairies, Paul Souza explained the importance of getting into compliance with the new rule. 
So a few years ago, the California Resources Board in Sacramento adopted a regulation that's basically a smog check for trucks. Uh, you need to get your truck smogged uh, in order to be able to register it with the DMV and renew your uh, annual license. The first deadline of that was January 31st. You needed to enter your truck into a, an ARB database that will interact with the smog uploads. When the truck gets smogged, the smog tester will send the information to that database and it will connect with your truck there. And pay a $30 fee per truck uh, in order to fund the program. And so January 31st, I know that's still open. You can still do that. Not a lot of people, I think, are aware of this. I'm talking to a lot of people that are just, you know, what? What are you talking about? Uh, really been trying to get this out there. Uh, it's going to be a requirement to register your truck. Uh, the enforcement will be when you get your DMV registration in the mail. If you haven't done this, it's going to say you're not eligible to renew your registration until you take care of this. And so that's going to be important to do. United Ag has unveiled its speaker lineup for the 44th annual meeting and conference themed Connect and scheduled for April 9th through the 11th in Napa. The three-day event aims to foster connections and drive innovation within the agricultural sector and will feature a dynamic program filled with thought-provoking sessions, interactive workshops, and engaging panel discussions. Keynote speakers include founder and creator of Shazam, Chris Barton, and Jose M. Hernandez, an entrepreneur, farmer, and author. With a focus on collaboration and networking, the event will feature over 300 representatives from member organizations, partners, and other influential leaders in agriculture. The conference also features health benefits advocacy and fundraising activities, including a packed golf tournament and Iron Chef takedown. More information about the event is available at unitedagconference.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. It's a new era for clean fuels. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Clean Fuels Alliance America welcomed almost 850 attendees from over 20 countries to its Clean Fuels Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. It was a chance to connect with key players in the biodiesel, renewable diesel, and sustainable aviation fuel industries. Clean Fuels CEO Donald Reagan says the conference offered a setting to unite on the mission and vision that are so critical to our success. He continues, as our industry continues to evolve, it will be more important to remain together and focused on the issues that moved us forward. Companies including BNSF Railway, United Pacific, and PepsiCo took the stage to discuss sustainability goals and how clean fuels are moving the needle to reach them. OEM operators took attendees behind the scenes to explain how they are embracing the challenge of decarbonization and securing approvals to ensure liquid fuels continue to play a pivotal role in powering heavy-duty machinery. State leaders shared their perspectives about the future of agriculture and the challenges producers are facing, as well as their experiences implementing USDA investments in food and agriculture at USDA's Ag Outlook Forum. Tim Boring, director of Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development, talked about some of the roundtable discussions he's held with farmers around the state to gather their concerns. One top concern is the weather. You know, extreme weather uh, continues to create a lot of challenges for us in Michigan, whether it's, it's too much rain at inopportune times or these short-term flash droughts. Temperature swings are a big thing in a state like Michigan where we're dependent on trees uh, you know, budding out at the proper time in the spring so that they don't get nipped by frost. Uh, the continued challenges that producers have of, of dealing with the effects of climate change, all of this are kind of under this umbrella of resiliency and, and diversity of how you build out resilient systems. And, and to me, that's, that's one of the, the, the true values of the, the, the work on the Climate Smart Commodities Program of 
of how do you incentivize soil health practices in a way that's focused on outcomes to get us where we need to go to, to mitigate the effects of climate change, ultimately reverse some of these drivers of it. Boring says water quality is also a high priority for Michigan producers. Prioritizing soil health practices is a way to get towards water quality outcomes. And, you know, I'm going to hesitate to say that a lot of these approaches run soil health and regen ag or silver bullets. But when you've got these approaches that address grand challenges from a number of different perspectives, then, then we've got something we really need to invest in here. So if you look at the implementation of these practices that prioritize diversity on farms and, and incorporating uh, higher levels of management, uh, I loved your statement at the beginning here. This isn't a, a binary choice between get big or get out. It's get get big or, or innovate, get innovative. And in a state like Michigan, where we've had a strong history of turning management into dollars, that's what we need to continue to double down on, right? This is the path to build rural communities. It's to feed healthier and feed people in healthier ways. If we're producing crops and commodities, food on farms in a way that has greater value in a lot of different ways, the social component of what farms are to rural communities, and farmers can get paid for it, uh, that creates compelling economic systems to drive things forward in a, in a, in a new path, right, that, that has greater outcomes, that's consistent with our values. Boring says many growers are interested in climate change mitigation. They see the social impacts, right? They see the community building aspects. They see the importance of, of linking these sorts of things together. I, I think growers are really interested of having a greater role in climate change mitigation, but trying to figure out where it makes sense to position, right? And, and as we stand up some of the emerging carbon markets and things like this, there's a lot of skepticism of how this is really gonna play out, right? But I think making those important connections about what this means up and down the value chain of, of why we should care about this work, I think continued building opportunities to grow your farm in a way besides just adding acres uh, really does resonate with folks. And I think there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about uh, working within the federal programs, the state programs that we're trying to stand up of growing farms and, and, and meeting these needs that I think a lot of people see in various ways and from different perspectives. He's optimistic as he looks forward to the future developments in climate change mitigation efforts that may reward farmers. To me, it's it's this is a this is a way that we change farm management implementation of practices in a way that hasn't worked in the past because we haven't we haven't pulled we haven't created these economic pull throughs in a market based system in a way that's that's demonstrated success in the past. The time is we're at a unique time of being able to leverage information technologies, having a much better sense of the outcomes that we're generating in communities on acreage around things like water management and nutrient loss. Uh, it's a unique time to be able to put some of these things together in a way that just the stars didn't line up in the past, probably. He says growers in Michigan recognize that adding more acres isn't necessarily the answer to guaranteeing the success of their operations. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, this is the barrier, right? If the only way you grow your farm is adding more acres, right? That's a, a defeatist approach here, right? I mean, we're, you now move to a place where we have one family running what three families ran a generation ago, right? There's fewer places to live within agriculture. And so we're working too of, of encouraging folks to be able to put the greenhouse on, right? Add a, a livestock component to your operation, bring the kid back home of, because there's a business opportunity to add more to the farm. But if you're gonna grow something different on the farm, you have to have somewhere to take it. Like what, what happens once you grow it, right? Like I. Growing sunflowers would be great, but you got to go somewhere with them. 
Uh, we're working in Michigan to stand up more distribution capacity, more processing capacity for where it goes from the farm next. And linking that on the back end, like we're, we want to incentivize food production here. And, and how does that get on the plates of families across Michigan? And again, like it's, it's, we can do a lot of good in specific areas when we focus on technical assistance on farms or distribution areas or food access and, and, and getting meals in schools. But the, the value becomes linking all these things together and doing it so they're all talking to, get, to, talking to one another at the very beginning. We're building with a consistent vision of how we, we amplify these sorts of things up. You build it around vision, you, you focus on outcomes. Uh, we get to a place within our food system that we, we've known, I think we've needed to go towards, uh, but there's a much clearer runway now of how we, we get that. In other news, USDA projects farm income categories are down for 2024, but what are some of the factors behind the forecast? Rod Bain reports. Most of the arrows regarding U.S. farm income categories are forecasted down for this year, per USDA's outlook revealed at the recent Agricultural Outlook Forum. This is USDA economist Kerry Lakowski. Net cash farm income for calendar year 2024 is forecast at $121.7 billion. That's about a 24% decrease from 2023 in nominal dollars. Net farm income is forecast at $116.1 billion, or about a 25 or 26% decrease decline from 2023. She says factors behind the declining farm income includes lower cash receipts for both crop and animal products and a decrease in direct government payments, as well as a rise in total production expenses. On the upside, the farm sector balance sheet remains relatively strong, with farm sector assets, debt, and equity each forecast to increase in 2024, with equity forecast to increase about 5%. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Brian German has today's featured interview. And we're out here at the World Ag Expo 2024. And uh, who are we standing here with this morning? Hey, hello. My name is Mike Newland. I'm with the Propane Education and Research Council. And we've got uh, several pieces of equipment out here. And we've spoken before in the past, but uh, just want to highlight here a couple of things you're uh, talking to the crowd about. Yes, we do have a lot of equipment on site today. So we've got uh, folks from Renai talking about new uh, generation water heaters, uh, gas water heaters um, that can be used on the farm as well as residential settings. We've got a number of irrigation engines on the property today from various vendors that are, uh, you know, important to this market in California, but also across the country as you look through the Corn Belt down to the southeast uh, parts of the U.S. as well. You know, not everybody wants to run uh, irrigation on electricity, and especially where we're standing today, that's a bigger issue. Um, you know, fire season, the, the electricity companies out this way tend to shut the power off. And if you happen to be in a critical spot for your crop, that's that's not a great situation. So, you know, we think propane, especially here in this state, but also across the Midwest, makes a lot of sense. It's a very effective way of running irrigation. It's very clean fuel. We don't have spill problems. If we do have a, a leak or a, a spill of some type, uh, there's no containment issues, there's no remediation issues. That product just goes away naturally. So we think it's a really good uh, situation. And we talk about it in California, but also it's stored energy. You know, we love talking about being able to control your farm and what happens on your farm yourself. And once you have that tank full of propane, you get to do with it what you want, when you want to do it. 
That's one thing that, um, you know, it, it's not often talked about as, as propane kind of used in, in um, other areas like that. Is there a growing interest? Are you getting a lot of questions about it? You know, we are. Uh, the irrigation conversation is one that we always have. The biggest source of energy for irrigation is electricity. But propane's growing every single year, and we're, we're doing that through messaging, through education. Uh, we've got a an incentive program to help folks who maybe want to switch from a different source of irrigation to propane irrigation. So a grower could get uh, checked back directly from our organization when you do install a an, an propane irrigation motor. So there's some reasons it's doing it uh, that we're growing every single year. So. Uh, the fuel's abundant. We've got a lot of propane in the country. You know, all the natural gas production that goes on in the U.S., all that produces propane. And we're burning about 40% of what we could be burning in the U.S., so we've got a lot of it. We're exporting the rest of that to other countries just to make sure that we can keep keep those natural gas plants running because uh, that's that's the critical piece in the whole whole uh, component is we've got to make sure we've got natural gas for all the power generation plants and uh, we're producing more and more propane every single month and every single year so we've got a lot of fuel the good thing is for the ag community we've got 800,000 farms that use propane today across our country they're used to the fuel so I don't have to convince them of what it is that it's safe that it's clean because they're used to doing it. They're either running their forklifts on the farm with it, they're drying grain with it, uh, depending on where you're at in the country. Those are the biggest uses of it on the farm. Uh, heating shops, um, you know, that's the one I guess I shouldn't forget about because we do, gosh, we, we uh, heat hog buildings, chicken buildings, turkey buildings all across the country with our fuel. So people are used to it, they're used to being around it, they know it's safe, they know it's clean. And these are just new uses, new ways of looking at agriculture, and we've got uh, some things that we think can help a lot of farmers around the country. And getting to that aspect of kind of outreach and education and some of those uh, incentive programs, I mean, what are some avenues out there and, and how, how are you going about some of that outreach to maybe inform farmers that aren't overly familiar with all of its uses? Yeah, so I would encourage folks when you go to a farm show, if you're looking to, to learn more about propane, keep an eye out for our organization, the Propane Education Research Council. We call it PERC, P-E-R-C. So we're the national organization, if you will, that promotes the industry. Also though, there are 38 state propane gas associations. So more than likely there's a state propane gas association wherever you're listening to this interview from that can also help you learn about propane, find a, a marketer in your area, a distributor if you need one, and all the safety training then that they kind of manage for their state marketers and state propane gas association we create all that materials and they distribute it at the local level so all those things are being done in addition to that if you're looking to do some research behind the scenes if, if you're a computer guy you like being on the computer go to our website propane.com that's perks website propane.com and on there there's agriculture specific web pages that you can learn about irrigation you can learn about grain drying building heat water heat for the farm all kinds of topics on there so we we talk about it we'll show you some videos if you want to watch a couple videos we normally have links to all the manufacturers on there as well if you want to do some research just on the equipment you can do that i mentioned the incentive earlier when we were talking irrigation engines at propane.com you can also research the incentive program 
the direct link is propane.com slash farm incentive. That's the direct link to that page. But it will spell out how we pay out those incentives at what, what levels of money and how all that happens. It's a very simple process. It's online application. We're going to need a W-9 from you. You're going to have to fill out a, a small application, and then you're going to have to provide a copy of the receipt for that piece of equipment. Once that happens, it's a pretty short process, not more than a week or two, and we'll have cut a check and, and get that out in the mail to you. So all that's spelled out at propane.com slash farm incentive. So we'd encourage folks to go there if they're looking to buy any equipment on the farm, know that there's probably a propane option, and then you can probably earn an incentive back from us. So it sounds like uh, propane.com is just kind of a, a catch-all for a lot of different resources, information, uh, if you're curious about using it, and links to equipment as well there. Absolutely. That, that's a great description. We've got every market outline. You know, I just deal in the agriculture space, but we've got residential stuff if you're looking to, to do new systems for your home. Uh, there's pages there for that and research there for that. We've got information on off-road equipment, so small engines, uh, all the way to stuff that ports use uh, are starting to run more propane to pull containers in and out of the ports that are demanding cleaner fuels these days. So in in the long run, propane's gonna win that port battle too. Uh, So that's exciting market for us right now. And then on-road applications. So um, gosh, all the way up to class six and seven trucks are burning propane. We're running powering fleets around the country. We got a lot of great things and propane.com is the place to hold all that information. Thank you, Brian. A new component to the American Climate Corps is now taking applications for training in various natural resources conservation efforts, Rudbane reports. It is the latest effort within the White House-led American Climate Corps. USDA, in partnership with AmeriCorps, the Corps Network, and the National Association of Conservation Districts, are establishing a new Working Lands Climate Corps. This is on top of the Forest Service Climate Corps that was announced in December. Deputy Agriculture Secretary Social Torres Small with the announcement during a recent media call. This new branch of the Climate Corps will provide at least 100 young Americans service opportunities. USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and the Corps Network are entering into an agreement to work on this effort. And the Corps Network will be releasing a request for proposal through which eligible organizations can apply to host the first class of Working Lands Climate Corps members. Organizations wishing to participate have until March 8th to submit applications via www.corenetwork, all one word, org, slash WLCC. White House National Climate Advisor Ali Zaidi says the Working Lands Climate Corps is also part of recent public feedback opportunities. Over 2,200 folks have joined four listening sessions. One of the things that we've taken away from that is different individuals want to engage in this climate solutions economy in different ways. Some people want to participate in installing charging stations. Others want to learn about putting solar on rooftops. And others want to figure out how to engage with nature in a way that delivers value, whether it's to their family farm or value to our public land. www.corenetwork.org slash WLCC also provides information on upcoming webinars in February. 
Kim LaFleur is president of the National Association of Conservation Districts, among the partners in the Working Lands Climate Corps. She notes the importance of this new entity to train a new generation of conservationists. With approximately 60 to 70 percent of the nation's lands and private ownership, outreach and technical assistance has never been more important. Our ability to achieve our climate goals depends on the millions of management decisions and actions that landowners and operators make every day. We have over time have realized that the voluntary locally led conservation delivery system works. But there's no shortcuts to it. It takes time to build trust, test new ways for people to steward their lands, and ensure that they know that we're there with them through their journey in conservation. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The outlook for the western water supply situation is improving in most watersheds. Here's Gary Crawford. Those recent California storms did do a lot of damage to homes and businesses, yes, but... Most of this recent storminess has been good news with respect to western water supply. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says those storms did add to mountain snowpacks, which were, when the year began, at only 25 percent of average. So now... That puts us up pretty close to 75 percent of average for mid-February. That's a huge improvement. That's the California situation. Meanwhile, further north in the northern Cascades and northern Rockies, things not looking good. We do have quite a few watersheds with less than half of the typical snowpack for mid-February. But at the other extreme, those storms have really improved prospects for water supplies in the southwest, where most snowpacks are at or above normal levels. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.